Isn't it awkward talking about death? We're all going to die in the end, yet somehow death is still seen as one of society's taboos. Dead Good brings the conversation to the forefront by asking those questions you want to know but might have been too afraid to ask. I'm Sajila Kershi, and in this podcast series, I'll be speaking to some of my favourite people, from comedians, actors and beyond, about their experiences of death, and in doing so, challenge the taboos that exist within society. In this episode, we're joined by New York comedian Louis Schaefer. Louis talks about growing up in a Jewish household with the backdrop of the Holocaust, and the impact this had on his views around death. We also discussed the complicated relationships he had with both his parents and the residual trauma from their deaths. We find out how he was faced with his own selfish choice between the welfare of his children and his dying mother. And Lewis opens up about his fringe show, Unopened Letters from My Mother. I really enjoyed seeing a different side to Lewis Schaefer. And I hope you do too. International man of mystery and funnies, it's Mr. Lewis Schaefer. Hello, Lewis. How are you? Hello. I would say international man of misery. (laughs) That's pretty much your stick, isn't it? Um, So, yeah, we're going to get stuck in because you know what the podcast is about. So I'm going to kick off straight away and ask you, what was your relationship with death growing up and how did it shape your views on death, dying and general bereavement? I mean, we're all going to die. For those at home triggered easily, spoiler alert, we are all going to die. Yeah, we're all going to die. So how was my relationship with death? You're born knowing you're going to die. You live knowing you're going to die and you die knowing you're going to die. I just lived in a constant state of fear, basically, is my situation, I would say, growing up is we all thought we were going to die. We, we were Jews living in the post-Holocaust years. I think, first of all, every single child is afraid of death because they see fear in your, their parents' eyes. Don't do that. Don't touch that. Don't go there. Don't eat that. Everything is you're going to die. It's never like, yeah, just go there. Go eat that. You know, do what you want to do. You know, you're a child. How many years are we talking post-Holocaust? What was this happening to you? Well, I never realized it, you know, until later that that's what it was. I was born in 1957. I look amazing. You do look amazing. Great hair. <laughs> it's not as good as it used to be. It used to be like amazing. I, my hairline used to be up to my, uh, down below my cheekbones, my hairline. We used to just, I used to have to comb it up like I was a wolf man. Mm-hmm. I was born in 1957. So that's 12 years after the Holocaust. That's actually really, really interesting because we still sort of see it as such a, long time ago but actually only 12 years before you do because you're young but i don't because i mean it was like those people who escaped the holocaust if they were 20 they're only 32 years old yeah you know if they lived through it and they where i was growing up in new york you saw lots of people walking down the streets with numbers tattooed on their arms that the nazis had put on their arms and at that age, did you know the significance of those numbers and what that meant? Yeah. Yeah, I would say. You were told that by your parents? I don't know how we learned about it. We learned about it. Every single day we learned about killing the Jews. Are they going to come and kill the Jews? They killed the Jews. In this country, they killed the Jews. In this country, they didn't kill as many Jews. In this country, they didn't kill any Jews. 
in this country there were no Jews. We learned all about it. That's the thing about being. That's why what's going on now with all this Jewish comments. I don't know. Whether, I don't know what you could call these things that are going on now. I hate to, to say it's anti-Semitism because we don't know what the people are thinking, but it just rattles. It rattles my nerves, and that's what we grew up with. Because that's really interesting. Because obviously, that's that you know there is much made of. Is there maybe there's a paranoia about everyone's being now anti-Semitic? But if you've grown up with that, that actually gives some context to why you may be, as you say, rattled. So you're young, you're about 12 years old. How old are you now at this point when you know that there's people walking around with tattoos on their wrists? I would say 10 years old, eight years old. So that's quite young. To be aware of the Holocaust, which is huge, lots of deaths, unnecessary deaths, and that also this fear that people are coming to get you and that no place is effectively safe for you and your family to go to. So that's lots of layers. But going back, so you're young, you know, you know all this. How are your parents? So your parents have obviously told you this history. What is their relationship with death in in terms of relaying that to you as a young child? Well, I grew up in a house, a sick household. I mean, my mother was sick. At first she was mentally ill or declared mentally ill. And then later on she was... uh, you know, older, and she was constantly talking about how sick she was. So there was that thing of like, your mother's not well, you know, from a very early age that we were burdened with. Don't do this. Your mother's not well. Don't do that. Your mother's not well. Is that it's like a tinge of guilt that if it, because she's not well, if you don't behave yourself, then she may not be with you anymore? Is that what, what was inferred? Uh, no, like you're causing it. Like you're making her sick. So there's a there's a guilt thing. Okay, because we uh, South Asians have the same thing. Yeah. You know, if you go out with that boy, you, you'll kill your father. You know, and that's yeah. that's like, the you know, it's total blackmail. <laughs> yeah. We've got this backdrop. You're about 10 years old, 8 to 10 years old. You know about the Holocaust. You, you see evidence of it around you with people walking around with the scars, literally the scars of this mass massacre, basically. Yes. And so you're Vis- at home. visible. Yeah, it's visible. visible. It's visible and it's also now ingrained emotively. Yeah. Um and, and into your makeup and your DNA. Now, what deaths did you experience when you were that age? Did you have any, you know, were there any pets dying? Were there any family members or friends or you know, did, did you had you been to a funeral at this point? I never I no, I had not been to a funeral, I don't think. Then no one in my close family circle had died by that point. But it was like it was always about death. It was there was always this. I think the other thing was that the state of Israel had just been created even ten years before I was born. So and they had already fought. And by the time I was, I remember when I was ten years old that they were fighting in another war, and there was that risk of like it's going to be the Holocaust all over again. Is it right to say that the fear of death at that point is around dying in a really brutal, horrific way? That being murdered, basically. That's being murdered. Yeah. 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 I think it was, it was they coming to get us. I mean, obviously there was the other kinds of death too, that my mother, you know. Through illness. Yeah. Explain to me what a Jewish funeral might look like to those of us who don't know. It's a ceremony and then a party. Hmm. Interesting. You know, the closest thing that I've heard is like a, you know, a wake, 
Yeah, I was going to say, it's like the Irish wake, yeah. It's like an Irish wake. It's like after the person dies, they go to the temple, they have a the funeral, whatever it is, the ceremony in the temple. They have a plain white, a plain pine box. It can't be ostentatious. That costs like $50 or something. You know, it's like it's like a box that you'd get the sour cream. You, not sour, cream cheese used to come in, a cream cheese box. Sour cream. Do, do you remember that? Are you old enough? Yeah, the cream cheese. The, you mean the craft boxes, the craft triangle cheeses? No, the, the Philadelphia cheese. Oh, the Philadelphia. Okay, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. And they used to come in these plain wooden boxes. This is like a, such an obscure reference. Somebody out there might be understanding this. I, I'm thinking you wouldn't be able to fit much more than maybe my ashes from my head into a Philadelphia box. No, that's not the size. That's oh, just, okay. It's like, All right. it's like there's no ornamentation. It's just like a, a rough pine. Box. So basically, just basic, because I can I can relate to that, because Muslims, they, they're buried yeah. just in three pieces of fabric, like three pieces of white fabric, yeah. and then just tied and, you know, but now obviously they've they've incorporated the coffins, a cheap coffin, biodegradable if necessary, just because it's, you know, people find it a bit icky to just chuck someone in the dirt. But yeah, so it's, it's because you leave with nothing. There's a kind of symbolism of like you leaving, you came with nothing, you leave with nothing. I've heard historically that the reason was is about 2000 years ago that they were spending so much money on these funerals that it got out of hand. And the religion just said, listen, we're wasting our money on these funerals. You know, we don't have the time or the energy or the money to have these huge coffins and with all the decorations when they're just gonna be dumped into the ground and never seen again. It's conspicuous consumption. So they passed a, 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 you know, a rabbinic law I think that that's the reason, and I've read that that's the reason. And if that's the reason, that's a totally great reason for doing it. And it might be, it might be the same in the Muslim thing, which is it's such a waste to to have a, an incredible wooden box that took hours and hours to make out of precious materials when it's just going to be buried. No, I kind of have to like just on a personal level. I think that is there's no point in wasting. And they have satin, and they want a particular. And I think it's because the people who are burying. They want to show their loved one that they cared about them. But actually, the loved one doesn't know because they're, they're kind of gone. So you, your pet grandparents must have died when you were young. Do you, do you remember how old you were? Well, that was the first person that died. That's when I realized it was because I remember I was 18 years old and my grandfather died. And uh, they everybody comes over to the house. You have to put fabric coverings over the mirrors so that people don't see themselves mm. so you don't focus on yourself during this time and then people come over they bring food it's an excuse to see your family and friends so some some good comes out of it that you have a little cry and then you start laughing and i remember being really upset at that really upset that people were laughing yeah and my you know my grandfather's dead you thought it was disrespectful i didn't understand it yeah i thought mm. it was disrespectful but you know now now you understand, you haven't seen these people. They're all your relatives. You don't see them that often. And so we now move on to your older. Have you had like other close deaths in your family or, or friendships that you, you can tell us about? Yeah, well, it's like the problem with me is, is uh, you know, I don't even want to discuss this because it's so, it's just a point that I, like both my father and my mother died and we basically did so little for their funerals like absolutely nothing. 
I'd like to think that I'm like a mature person and able to organize a funeral. Mm. Who died first? My father died first. He died of a cerebral hemorrhage. And how old are you at this point? How old was I? Uh, I was, let's say that's 20 years ago. I was in my 40s. 20 years ago. Okay. I was in my, oh my God, I was in my 40s. And I had my own problems, you know. It was, it was a sudden death or did you know he was ill or? It was pretty much a sudden death. He had a, he had a, like a stroke. Yeah. And then he just, he just died pretty quickly. Where were you? Where was he? He was, uh, he was in New York on Long Island. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was in London and I just had the baby. Well, the wife just had the baby. We just had a baby. Yeah. And uh, I was fighting with the wife and I was like, unbelievably not, I was unbelievably exhausted, not doing that well. I was being, um, I was looking after the kids. The wife was very unhappy with me. I was unhappy. And then he died. And before he died, I went and visited him. And then I flew back to England to be with my kid because I thought my kid was more important than my father dying. I'm like a, a child in a way. I wasn't able to handle these things. But I do feel like I wish I was a more responsible person who could hand, who could multitask and do multiple things and organize things. So did you organize the funeral for your dad? We didn't even we didn't have a funeral. This is the thing. We had a few people over to the house. My sister basically did that. She got people to come over to the house. So we didn't have a religious ceremony. But I mean, by this time, basically, my whole life was like, I wasn't crumbling exactly. Oh, my God, Sajili, you were, you were really bringing it out. Is uh, You know, you have a view of how you want it to be, how like the legitimate people do it. Yeah. Like my, my father's friend who died, and he had a big thing in one of the huge synagogues with thousands of people there, yeah. you know? And just that, you know, the whole thing was so well organized, like a presidential funeral or like the, when the queen dies. That's yeah, the yeah, way you, yeah. you envision it. And then when it happens, I was totally unprepared for it. We did, Financially, I didn't have any, any money at the time. Now I'm super rich, just if anybody's watching <laughs> or listening. <laughs> you can find me on Tinder. And so at the time, I couldn't handle it. So I didn't. I didn't know what to do. I had problems in London, in my mind, with my own child who needed attention because I grew up, remember I said I grew up, my mother, she had variable attention. It was, it, sometimes she was paying a lot of attention to me and sometimes she didn't. And I thought to myself, my child is going to get unbelievable attention from me, from either me or the mother of my children. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It was super important. So that's what I did. And I totally... I don't totally regret it. I mean, I just wish it's sad because as now I'm like approaching the age of my father and I see how my children are with me and I'm thinking, I don't want them to feel bad about their failure, possible failure to take care of me as a, as when I'm older to do the right things. I don't want to burden them either. I think this is important to remember that to those who, who lose parents is that, you know, when you become a parent yourself, you realize that, that you would not want them to feel guilty in any shape, form whatsoever about your death or yeah. that they didn't do enough for you because your your job is finished. When you've raised them, 
you brought them up. You're all. You, it's it's never. It's you're always that parent, and you're always watching out for them. Yeah. It's not their responsibility. Even though in the South Asian culture we take care of our parents, but I certainly wouldn't want to be a burden on my child. And I think it's really important to remember that to those who've lost parents, that the guilt. It's something that that we they don't want us to carry. I wouldn't want yes. my, and I'm sure you don't want, you know. And so I, I totally, hundred percent, yeah, completely. And I'm pretty sure that your dad wouldn't have wanted you, you know, because you, you're there, your priority is your children, and that's where you were. That that's fine. Okay, so your father passed away. You've got some sort of residual guilt, a little bit, if even though you know that you should be there for your child. So what happens now with your mother when she dies? When when did that happen? That happened ten years later in 2011, or eight years later. In 2011, it was also a similar situation to that, where I came in and I organized the um, the funeral. Geographically, where are you now? Where is she? Well, she's in she's in Brooklyn. She moved back to Brooklyn, and um, she was living in a nursing home in Brooklyn. And it was it was a very bad ending for her because I hadn't spoken to her in a very long time. Basically, you know. I couldn't deal with her. I mean, I'm a man. I've got total guilt and resentment for this. Is it fair to say that you might have had a complicated relationship with your mother? Yeah. Like my father, like you mentioned how you, my father wouldn't have wanted me to feel guilty about his death. Yeah. My mother would have. <laughs> she would have. <laughs> and she would have seen that as a sign of good parenting that, oh my God, my son, he loves his mother so much. He feels so bad about it. Yeah. And that would, I think she would see that as a, a sign of good parenting, that her child mm-hmm. cares so much after her death. Yeah. Yeah, isn't he a good boy? It was like, it wasn't like she was saying, she was saying, come and take care of me. Like, I'm supposed to drop everything and take care of her. You know, I had my problems in London. Okay, so I, I'm going to draw some parallels with, you know, your, your complicated relationship with your mum and my complicated relationship with my father. And it's just more that I, I mean, I'm sort of going to kind of say like you, you wanted your mother to be fixing your problems. And in a similar way, I wanted my dad to fix my problems. Like, you know, daddy come save me, like for whatever I thought, you know, I needed saving from. So when he dies, it's an ultimate betrayal. You've left me. And, you know, it's, so I just wondered that complicated relationship is if that causes us much more pain than those who lose parents who know that they're loved and it's kind of, there's nothing unsaid. No, no, yeah. no, and and yeah, and the reason why I bring this up, and because I know, is because you do a show then, years later, which is obviously the show about the letters that you find from your mother. So, could you just explain what happened there? The show is called "Unopened Letters from My Mother." I found a number of letters that my mother had written to me when I had moved to London that I had not opened. And so I decided for an Edinburgh show, there's the Edinburgh Festival, Edinburgh Fringe Festival, which a lot of people go to Edinburgh and they do kind of like a story show, like for 45 minutes an hour, of an interesting thing that's happened to them in the past year, filled with jokes. Sometimes there's more jokes than there is story. And I saw these I saw these 22, 23 letters, and I thought to myself, that's the exact same number of an Edinburgh of the number of days in an Edinburgh show, which is really convenient, right? <laughs> well, it, and the, and it, the, and the cynical amongst us might think, 
rather too convenient. <laughs> that I'd written these, that I'd written these yeah. letters. Yeah, it might be. I do remember that you had like really bad days during that Edinburgh run um, where I think the letters had affected you. The whole thing had affected me. It was basically, it was, it was absolutely brilliant yeah. for me. And I think, I don't know if people who've seen the show thought it was brilliant, but it made them think, it made me think about the life of this mother, my mother, this woman. It was my mother and my life. Can I ask, why did it take you so long to open those letters? What was the fear of opening them? What did you think you were going to... Because, like, you said something that I don't didn't agree with, which is, like, I, like, you were looking for your father to save you. I wasn't looking for my mother to save me. I was looking for my mother to stop helping me drown. Isn't that the same thing? Saving you? No. She was saying come back, take care of me. Instead of saying, dear Lewis, how are you doing? I'm so glad you're there. You're doing a great job over there. And I'm not asking her for help. I'm just asking her for not to say, leave your kids alone, come home and take care of me. That's what I'm asking for. Just to not reach from under the lake and pull me down. But you don't know this until she's died. And you're opening the letters, one one each day. You don't know what the letters are going to hold. And it's almost like she's speaking from beyond the grave because you're now, you know, reading these letters you've never read before. Did that give you some sort of closure, those letters? It did, yeah. Basically, I saw the tragedy of my mother's life, pers- her personal tragedy, and I saw the society that she was operating under that sort of prevented her from achieving what she wanted to achieve. Yeah, I kind of find a little parallel. Like, you know, I guess I was angry at my dad because he'd left, you know, left us when we were quite young to go and pursue politics. And he, I just, I guess I wanted him to come back and fix things with me. You know, I don't know. I feel maybe that's what you might have wanted from your mother because those complicated relationships with parents when they leave us are, are a lot harder to grieve. There's, it's very complicated grief. Maybe it's a boy thing or me thing, but mine was the exact opposite. I just wanted my mother to leave me alone. <laughs> I just wanted my mother to take care of herself, to, for me to live a life without having to be worried about my own mother. I didn't want to be worried about my mother. I had my own worries. I, didn't, I wanted her to alleviate some of the responsibility on my shoulders. And she did not do that. Your situation, I understand your situation. Where's daddy's? I want to be here and take care of me. I was thinking, just don't send me uh, a letter. Don't don't ask for don't ask me for anything. If you want to love me, don't ask me for anything. Is that why you didn't open the letters? Because you were angry? Uh, no, I just it was a drag. My mother was a. It's a horrible thing to say. I'm a very bad. I wish I was a better. No, no, but it's I, I, I appreciate your honesty in this because obviously, you know, relations are, they do not come in perfect little packages, and when no. we have grief, it comes in different shapes and forms and you know sizes, and sometimes we don't grieve at all, and that's okay, and that's what the purpose of this podcast is is to kind of show that there are so many different experiences, but in terms of like collecting these letters, these twenty three odd letters, you know, that must have been I can't. I can't, like, when a text message comes up yeah, and I think, no, I know it's from, I don't want to answer it, I don't want to answer it, but I will crumble. For you to kind of keep these letters, you really didn't want to hear. That's like, obviously there was some anger, anger 
stuff going on that you didn't want to hear what your mother said or you assumed you knew what was going to be in the letters? I knew what was going to be in the letters. I didn't know. That's why when I opened them, they were still a surprise because they were the detail. I knew that there wasn't anything good in those letters. I knew there was no money in those letters. <laughs> if there was money in those letters, I would have opened them. <laughs> and one time I said, listen, if you want me to open your letters, send me some money. Put, you know, if she had put a couple of dollars in each letter, I would have opened it up. But she didn't. Remember, this, is, this was about... 10 years, these letters were unopened for 10 years. Yeah, yeah. Okay, or more. 2000 and, no, they were unopened for more, 15 years. Yeah. And I wasn't sitting there looking at these letters, thinking, oh, I should open them. I, maybe I'll open them today and not opening them. No, I just, I just put them aside. And you forgot about them. She was, uh, you know what? I hate to say it. My mother, I loved my mother, but it was a bit of a, a drag. It was a it was a me 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 kind of thing. So your mum's all about me 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 me, and it and it occurs to me that you're actually a lot more like your mother than you realise. No, I know I'm like my mother. Yeah, <laughs> I'm very feminized. Yeah, you're very me me me. It's because we're very close friends, and so obviously we know I know this about you. So I'm just teasing you. Okay, so yeah. let's go back to the letter. So you do show you unopen, open the letters and effectively they're messages from your mother from the grave. That is kind of what, it, what it's really kind of, kind of going on here. So it is. How, how does that change your grief in any way or your opinion of your mother? Like, so the grief that you had when she passes away, when she dies, does that change your grief when, when you then read the letters, like a piecing the information about her when she was alive? It was very sad, really. It was, it was, first of all, you're right. It was letters, it was letters from the grave. And I felt bad for myself that I had not been competent enough to actually, I could have probably been nicer to her, called her more often. It wouldn't have killed me. You know what I mean? It wouldn't have killed me to call her more often, but I just felt like I just don't have the, I couldn't survive. I felt very inadequate as a human being during those years. I just thought I've got nothing to give this woman to save her. It's almost like, I'm sorry, you're going to die. I mean, emotionally. And she was dying emotionally. And my father, at that time, she got a divorce from my father. An old divorce. She was like in her 60s and she divorced, my father divorced her. Your father divorced her or she divorced him? She divorced her. I think he got just fed up with her. And I think, you know, you blame the world because now people, somebody should have said to him, no, you can't divorce her. It's too late. You're sick. You're 70 years old. You cannot, you know, you're the breadwinner in the family. You cannot divorce her. I never spoke to my father about this. And that's another regret that I have, which is, I think he thought I would die, or maybe I'm seeing myself in this. He's thinking I have to divorce her because she's keeping me up all night long. I cannot sleep and I'm going to die if I stay married to her. And it just led to the total destruction of my mother's life. And then obviously she reached out to you and in those letters. She reached out to me for sympathy, but I was at that point, I had been, I'm not saying I was brainwashed by my father but possibly brainwashed to think that my mother was the bad one. I'm very, very much hearing here, Lewis, that you feel like you kind of lost your parents over and over in, in, in different ways. You know, the the growing up that you, you're constantly told about the death and that, you, you know, your father can die, your mother can die. You know, there's all the Holocaust kind of imagery and 
the stories and you know ingrained then you go up you you know lost your grandparents you're angry about that and because it's not the funeral that you imagined as an 18 year old and then you when your father dies you love him and that you have this kind of complicated decision to make to choose your child or him and then your mother finally dies and there's a complicated relationship there that you only sort of unpick and kind of put the you know jigsaw puzzle together when when you open those letters in many ways you you've been pretty much kind of grieving different stages of of those relationships with them and then so when they die physically it's not necessarily i don't feel like you were sort of particularly surprised is that would that be right to sort of say that that's not the exact word but it's very close to it i was relieved i was relieved at the death of my parents i when my mother died it was like oh hallelujah it wasn't a happy day, but it was like a relief day. And that's, I just thought, you know what? There's nothing I could do for her. I need to do something for her, but I can't do something for her. She died a miserable, horrible death in a nursing home in Brooklyn. Do you know that for sure? Or is that just, is that your guilt kind of, or your, or the work, you know, you're thinking of the worst case scenario? Because do you have any evidence to suggest that she had the worst? Well, She's in a nursing home and she's not being visited by her children. I mean, maybe that's my personal preference. Yeah, prejudice. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the worst death you can have is to basically be abandoned by your own children. Which brings us to how you view death now. That's your worst fear. That's what I'm hearing. I don't know. I, d I don't know what you're hearing. I, I sound. I must sound like a horrible person with my parents. No, because I'm not sitting in judgment and I hope that those listening you know anyone who's might be in your position this might be helpful to them because things it, this isn't um a happy this isn't fairy stories you know we're all going to lose people that we love and they don't always have happy deaths or i mean i don't know happy ever after but they don't have a a resolution at the end a little bow and it's complete sometimes that grief comes on years later and it affects us and clearly these deaths in your family where you've lost your mother and father specifically have affected you. You know, it's, it's driven you to put it into your work, doing a whole Edinburgh show. No, their lives, maybe you putting it that way, I would say their lives affected me. In death, I, I do feel a little something. What do you feel? I feel sadness and regret and loss. But I also feel, I also feel like, thank God my parents aren't here, that I don't have to focus on them. It's really interesting you say that because I remember a teacher back in university had lost her to both of her parents quite quite close together. And we were all like, oh, my God, this is awful. This is awful. It's really devastating for you. And she said, oh, it's really strange. I feel very liberated since both parents died. And I found that really fascinating because I couldn't think of anything worse. Like I was really shocked and judging her at the time. But I kind of understand what she was saying because she no longer had to be judged from the framework of her, her parents or, the, or how they viewed her. No, that's that's what you're thinking. We have a very different view of that. Like, I don't think that. I think that I just have less responsibility. That my parent, my mother especially, was burdening me with responsibility, and my father too, because I didn't mention my father was morbidly obese. Okay. I mean, probably by now, you know, by American standards, now he's not that fat. Yeah, yeah. But he was he was proper fat, and. We, even then, we knew he's going to die. We thought he was going to die. We thought, oh, my God, you're going to die any moment. So it was always because of his... We knew even then that being 
obese was a bad thing. And so when he died, he died at 77, which wasn't super young, but whatever. And my, my mother died, who was diagnosed as mentally ill, which I don't really believe she, she was really anymore, but just labeled by society this way, which is what they did back in the day. I mean, if my, I think my show was quite a, actually a feminist experience for me because I really felt for my mother, who was a super bright woman, but hadn't been able to, but had expectations of creativity and doing something great. But she was a housewife living in the suburbs. And so I felt for her as a woman that what she had been through. I was just relieved that she died. It wasn't like she's judging me from the grave or, you know, or I wish I had done something to make her think better of me, or I wish she had seen me now as a person. I wasn't thinking those things. Okay. So how does your relationship with death shape how you live your life today? Well, you know, as we get older, we think about it a lot. Basically, I am I am obsessed with death now mm. because uh, I was basically healthy for most of my life until I reached about 55, 60, and I just started to crumble and to physically crumble. And I had all these tiny little ailments, you know, like plantar fasciitis, my feet would hurt. I had frozen shoulder. I couldn't move my shoulder. I had trigger finger my trigger was my finger was locked in place and when it became unlocked the pain was excruciating bleeding gums psoriasis i had sleep apnea so i couldn't sleep at night Mm. i was a complete absolute mess and i was like totally depressed like absolutely depressed and um i thought i was going to die and i made a list of i thought i had one year to live i was maybe 58 years old or something yeah which is not that old. And I thought, I've got one year to live. And I made a list of the things that I needed to do in the year, you know, to like write a, like the basic things, not a, not a bucket list, a, kick, a kicking the bucket list. Kicking I guess that's what it comes from. <laughs> kicking the bucket list. Yeah. Yeah. I must not be the first person to say that, but that's, and so that's when I realized I was going to die. Did you write letters to your children? No, but I think that was, that was, no. I'm, one of the things that was on my list is to, uh, is to be nice to my ex-wife. The mother of your children. The mother of my children. Yeah. yeah. Nicer, maybe. So it's, it's basically now you're faced with your own mortality. We're not going to live forever. <laughs> you know, kind of get to an age where our peer groups start kind of disappearing and, you think about your own mortality you know i want to i want to kind of find out if if you facing death has changed how you are yourself because obviously i know you're very heavily into dietary stuff i mean is that what's is that that you trying to keep yourself alive for as long as possible yes yeah because i realize you know i don't want i don't want to die i don't want to die it's as simple as that. I don't want to die. I don't want my. I don't want to burden my kids with an unhealthy person. I'm with. I've got to, you know. I, I did. I didn't want to die, and that's when I realized. And 
so the next step was is my ment I became mentally involved in health issues, which I never was. And I think that so whether it's good or bad what I what I'm doing, I spend all day long thinking about being healthy. Which is great because obviously that's good for your for you to be around as long as possible for your children, right? And yeah, for my children. Yeah. And I, I probably would do it anyway, just even if I didn't have kids. Yeah. And I think because of my mother being constantly sick, okay, and my father being constantly, basically unhealthy, he wasn't sick, but he was unhealthy. I just said, I'm not going to be that way. I'm not going to be that way. And I've, I believe I've completely turned myself around that way. I'm not depressed anymore. All those problems that I listed are gone, plus tons of others that I had. Well, on that positive note, we're down to our last three questions. And it's a little bit more positive, sort of fun part of the show. How would you spend your last week on Earth, Louis Schaefer? I would spend my last week on Earth getting, going on the internet looking for uh, alternative diagnoses. I would, I would look for a second opinion. <laughs> I thought you were going to say something else. Thank God you didn't. Okay, so you're going to look for a cure, basically. No, I wouldn't look for a cure. I would see whether I really had something the matter with me. Okay. Not just a cure. <laughs> I'm not going to listen to some doctor tell me, oh, you're going to die next week. It's not a doctor. It's me telling you've got one week to live. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I would... <laughs> I would try to take I would try to find you and take the gun out of your hand. <laughs> okay, what's your I would say to Sheila, what did I do that was so wrong? I'm sorry. Like, stop talking. Stop talking, Lewis. That's what you did wrong. Phoning me up at midnight. So what's your fantasy funeral? My fantasy funeral would be me saying I don't want to have a funeral and then them holding some great big event party like my father's friend who died and there were thousands of people there. That would be my thing where they all gave, where the people gave speeches, told funny speeches about all the funny things that Lewis Schaefer. So basically just a, a, a ego massage, but you're not there. Not for me. So my kids could see. This. Oh, you see. Oh, that's nice. That's really nice. So kids could see that their father wasn't such a bad man, no matter what the reputation was, no matter what the police said, no matter what, <laughs> what the courts <laughs> declared, no matter what Sajila said about him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and all the people that you've done wrong, yes. Um, so what three words or short saying would you like on your, say, gravestone or to be remembered by? So those three words or a short phrase, how you want to be remembered? Um, two boats and a helicopter. And that's the punchline of a joke. <laughs> two boats and a helicopter. So basically a punchline without a setup. Yeah, and let people go look for the joke. Let, no let, setup. <laughs> the joke is the priest is in his hat, whatever his house, the priest. And there's a flood. And the, they come with a boat to get the priest out of his house. And the priest says, no, I'm not going to leave my house. I believe in the Lord. The Lord will provide. And then uh, the wars rise high. He's on the second floor. And they come with another boat. They say, priest, get into the boat. You're going to drown. We're here to save you. He says, no, I'm gonna, I believe in the Lord. The Lord will provide. And then... The waters go up to the, his roof. He's on the roof. The waters are lapping on his feet. And they send that. And there's a helicopter. And they say, priest, come up. Father, come up into the helicopter. We hear this, you know. He says, no, I'm going to stay with my church. The Lord will provide. And then he drowns. 
the priest drowns and he's up in heaven and he sees God. He goes up to God and he points his finger at God. He says, he says, how could you do this to me? I believed in you, God. I believed in you and you didn't provide. You didn't help me. And he says, help you. I sent you two boats and a helicopter. That's great. That's great. We've got a version of that as well. That's brilliant. That's a great day. That's a great way to end. Thank you so much, Louis Schaefer, for joining us here and dead good and being so honest and candid with us. Thank you, Sajila. If you've been affected by any of the issues we've discussed today, then please do visit our website at stchristophers.org.uk, where you'll find resources and support on a whole range of issues. Thanks for joining us here on the Dead Good Podcast, brought to you by St. Christopher's Hospice. I've been Sajila Kershey. Until next time, farewell. <laughs>